Hi, this is Brennan from the Ghost Story Guys. Prevailing podcast wisdom says that you should record five episodes and then release the fifth so that by the time you go public, you have a solid idea of your format and more or less know what you're doing. We didn't do that. So while we're very proud of the work we've done in these early episodes, it's considerably rougher than what we're doing now. So if you find yourself thinking, what the hell am I listening to? I promise it gets better. Thank you for listening. Now, on with the show. Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storer, that's Ian Gibbs, and this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun is set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday, February 7th. This is episode two. As always, we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing well. How are you? I am good. Episode two. I know we made it. We somehow <laughs> managed to put together that terrible mess of recordings that was episode one and make it into something listenable. Well, that's because you're a true artist when it comes to editing. It's true. And <laughs> I'm, I'm handsome. And humble. Oh, humble most of all. <laughs> humble most of all. We do have some listener feedback from last time, so it's not all, it did not go to waste. People uh, were a little concerned about the sound levels, which we are working on. Um, we are also excited to one day purchase equipment that will uh, serve us better. That would be great. Uh, for those of you curious, we're, we're recording this entire thing on a Zoom H2N recorder, which is great, but it's it's not exactly top-level podcasting. Here. No. So if anybody wants to donate, they can certainly uh, get in touch with us and, and let us. Maybe you have a failed podcast <laughs> that you don't want anyone knowing about. Please send us your equipment. We would welcome it gratefully. You, we will, in exchange, give you one free night with Ian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> me reciting poetry to you. <laughs> the, Trust me, that's better. <laughs> the other thing, not that I know. The, Jesus, not that I know. <laughs> Oh. The other thing was uh, awkwardness. Thank you for highlighting that right there, Brennan. Um, believe it or not, we've actually only known each other for two months. And uh, we're doing pretty well because, you know, we don't hate each other yet. So that's kind of a new record, I think, for both of us. I think so. He's put up with me this long. And that, so, that counts for something. There you go. So uh, it was really great to get that feedback. Um, it was really helpful. And uh, it was just nice to hear what people thought. And, and we hope you keep doing that because we'd love to hear more. So it was pointed out that the last episode featured some salty language from yours truly. I'm shocked. I know. <laughs> and for that, I beg your pardon. We bleeped the one F-bomb, but a few of the other naughty words made it through. Now, I can't promise you I won't swear. I can't count how many times I've lost bets to my wife about how long I can go without swearing. But I, I will say we'll be diligent about editing, uh, so there won't be any naughty words, and this will be family-friendly. That will be nice. Yeah. And in that vein, Ian has prepared a list of words I'm not allowed to say again on the show. So you will never again hear from me on the show say the words f sh juice or tits a poppin'. A listener named Joanna uh, wrote in to politely suggest that I may not have given Ian's book the same amount of push as I did my own book, A Strange Little Place, available everywhere fine books are sold. It was certainly not my intention, as Ian is both my co-host and creative partner, and he has expressed a lot of enthusiasm for my book, A Strange Little Place, available everywhere fine books are sold. And are you going to mention my book? In It's Not Always About You. Moving on. 
Today we're going to be talking about the most classic of horror movie tropes, haunted houses. Some famous, some not, and some you can still stay in, should you for some reason want to. <laughs> after that, Ian has a personal story he'd like to share with us. All that and more coming up after a quick break. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wooden stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. So begins Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, arguably the most famous of all haunted house novels. Published in 1959, the book tells the story of a scientist who brings together a group of people in an allegedly haunted house to see if the house affects their behavior. Over the course of the book, of, of course, the house does, and it begins to subtly work on the guests. The novel's considered a classic of the genre, and if, if you haven't read it, you really should. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've always enjoyed about The Haunting of Hill House, and I don't know if you feel the same way, Ian, is how it never overplays the house's paranormal activity. As we're about to see from looking at all these famous haunted house cases, by and large, these are not stories of shambling grotesqueries waving their terrifying underparts at traumatized insomniacs. <laughs> no matter how many terrible true books out there will tell you otherwise, and they will. Uh, absolutely. And in fact, even in my own story, it's it's all very subtle. It all comes together slowly. It's 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 strange, and I think that's why this book is so good. Because it just very slowly starts to build a picture that as more is revealed, the scarier it becomes. Real stories of hauntings are way less dramatic and a lot more interesting than people would have you believe. Mm -hmm. uh, the first such house is the Molly Brown House in Denver, Colorado. It was named for the famous Margaret Molly Brown, who you'll no doubt recognize as the woman who taught Leonardo DiCaprio how to use silverware <laughs> oh, on the Titanic. That's who she was. Yeah, everyone knows her. <laughs> Later, she showed Jack Nicholson her boobs <laughs> for a nickel. <laughs> oh. We're going to cut that out. <laughs> Brown was a first-class passenger of the Titanic, but she started life poor. Uh, she was the child of poor Irish immigrants, John and Johanna Tobin in Hannibal, Missouri. And you ever notice how you never hear stories about wealthy people from Missouri? No, they usually end up in better places. No offense to people from Missouri. She married poor, too, to a mining engineer named Jim Brown, who was unfortunately not the lovable fullback from the Cleveland Browns. I'm, sh I'm shocked. Oh, that would have made a great sitcom, though. <laughs> Brown made his fortune in 1893 when his engineering work helped uh, launch a productive seam of the Little Johnny Mine for his employers, the Ibex Mining Company. Ibex actually rewarded him with shares in the company and a seat on the board. And remember the days when a company would actually reward you financially for making them money? No, I do not. No, no, neither do I. What a wild, woolly time that must have been. How confusing to the workers to have to figure out what to do with all that extra money. And then what a burden. Ibex having made him rich, the Browns bought what would become Molly Brown House at 1340 Pennsylvania Avenue in 1893. The house is in Denver's Capitol Hill neighborhood, and should you ever find yourself there, make sure to check out Sliceworks Pizza on Colfax. Now, I can't eat cheese anymore, but if I could, I'd pitch a tent in Sliceworks. Or another one, I, I guess. <laughs> they have this stuffed pizza, which is sort of like a... Like a pizza with a crust on top of it, too? Oh, nice. man, it was good. There's also Jelly Cafe down the road, which has these great donuts with... Um, so when did this become uh, all about the Food Network? Okay. Just saying. Moving on. I mean, I like good food, too, but... 
Let's focus. Fine. Brown owned the house until her death in 1932, and after which it became at various times a governor's mansion, a boarding house, and it's now a museum dedicated to preserving the legacy of Brown and the cause that she championed. Uh, funny enough, and this is just a pointless little trivia side that I... I love those. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's, that's that's going to be on my tombstone. <laughs> a pointless little trivia side. <laughs> Uh, apparently, during her life, Brown's friends called her Maggie, not Molly. Apparently, it wasn't until the unsinkable Molly Brown came out that people started referring to her posthumously as Molly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping after I die, someone writes a musical about me called The Insatiable Biceps Make Big Knob. No one is calling you that. <sighs> Both staff of the museum and visitors claim to have seen the ghosts of Maggie and her husband smelled pipe smoke. Uh, this is worth a chuckle because J.J. wasn't allowed to smoke in the house back in the day. Uh, so I assume he's doing it now because he can't die twice. <laughs> well, and it makes sense. I mean, the houses were all wooden, and they were burning down left, right, and center. So Well, that's a point. I understand why maybe smoking in the house wasn't a good idea. What's the excuse now, then, God? I just want to have a cigarette sometimes. Um, because they will kill you, and we know that now. You know what? Everything will kill me. I'm going to die eventually. <laughs> and hopefully the more cigarettes I smoke, the fewer of these conversations I'll have to have. Uh, apparently, some people have felt icy cold spots, especially in Molly's bedroom, which wouldn't have happened if she'd married that football player. Oh, my God. Uh, the blinds in what was once her daughter's room will raise and lower on their own when no one is looking. Uh, an elderly woman believed to be Molly's mother will be seen peeking out of the window of uh -huh. that same room. And supposedly the ghost of a woman in Victorian dress has been seen moving furniture and was said to be caught on video, but I haven't, couldn't find the video. And generally, I think ghost videos are yeah, I know. They're, they're, it's way too easy to manipulate things, so I think they're all a little bit suspect. I guess that's the pit now with, with, with photo evidence. Any kind of photo evidence really is it's pointless and suspect. Absolutely. Because it can be so easily manipulated. Yeah, I know. And I've seen some great ones that I really wish were real. Right. Um, but I don't feel like I can believe them because it's just way too easy to fake that stuff now. And that's so should any of you see any pictures of me doing something that doesn't sound like something I do? Like jogging? <laughs> <laughs> you. Those pictures have been doctored. Uh, the second haunted house we're going to quickly talk about here is the Lemp Mansion. And the Lemp Mansion uh, is, is, is an interesting case uh, because I told you earlier there were no rich people in Missouri. They don't exist. Well, they do. Oh. Uh, but it turns out the story of the Lemp family is a great example of why they don't stay in Missouri. Oh. Johann Adam Lemp arrived in St. Louis from Germany in 1838 and in typically dramatic fashion opened a small grocery store that sold everything from household items to homemade beer. As you do. Well, it really is a German thing, because I worked with a retired German fella back in the day in Radio Shack. He moved to Canada to retire and promptly set about opening both a bed and breakfast and a reupholstery business, <laughs> and he worked at Radio Shack in his spare time. Not my retirement plan. No, not mine at all. He's going to outlive us all. Probably. Richard is going to be grooming his mustache atop the pile of corpses left following the nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> Uh, the beer that, that uh, Lemp made was a light lager. It was made using a recipe his father had handed down to him. And it was a real departure from the darker beers everyone around there had become used to. So uh, by 1840, Lemp sold the grocery store and he opened a small brewery near the site of the St. Louis Arch, or where it is now. Right. It's, which, is, of course, the Arch being the only St. Louis landmark anyone has heard of. Though the City Museum is apparently a lot more fun. From what I'm told, it's like a playground, but for adults. Not not an adult adult playground. It's like a kid's thing. It's an adult. Adult playground, not oh. an adult playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. don't you don't play with kids like Oh god, this is going really bad. I'll stop. Okay. Please. Just Google St. Louis City Museum. <laughs> You'll understand. 
Don't Google Adult Playground. Do not Google Adult Playground. <laughs> Google Adult Playground. <laughs> the brewery became Lemp's Western Brewing Company, and by the time he died in 1868, uh, Adam Lemp was a millionaire, and his brewery had outgrown its old home. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lemp's son, William, took over the company and built a new facility that eventually grew to encompass five whole city blocks. William Lemp eventually bought the house that would become the Lemp Mansion, building up the already grand home until it was a 33-room Victorian showcase. Well, you know, I was just saying to my wife the other day, honey, I think we need at least 30 more rooms in our house. I, I mean, if you're going to do it, go big, right? Go big. I mean, that, that p***y Bono, he, he just put a giant room on top of his house. I mean, that's that that's that small-town thinking, Bono. Yeah. From the mansion, a, a tunnel was actually built from the basement to the limestone caves where the beer was stored at nice. the brewery. Oh, it was fantastic. There was apparently a series of limestone caves connecting the two. And then when mechanical refrigeration became available, parts of the cave were converted for other purposes, including a natural auditorium and a theater. Nice. Yeah, and there would also be a concrete swimming pool later uh, with hot water piped in from the brewery and a bowling alley. Unfortunately, in 1901, at the height of the family's success, things went to hell. Uh, William Lemp's favorite son, Frederick, died of heart failure at the age of 28. Well, how do you think the other kids feel knowing that? I love you too, but you know, Frederick was my favorite, as we've discussed many times. Just jump in the hole with them, boys. <laughs> it's all over for it's you. Done. No, we're fine. No, no, get in the hole. I'm guessing the other kids may be offed Frederick, but you know, just a theory. <laughs> well, considering what his next favorite son gets up to, oh. we can understand why Frederick was top of the heap. Oh, no. Yeah, so Lemp fell into a depression, and that only got worse when his best friend Frederick Paps died three years later on New Year's Day in 1904. Of course, despondent after this, William Lemp shot himself just about a month later. So his son, William Lemp Jr., his other son, rather, William Lemp Jr. took the over. The not-so-favorite son. The not-so-favorite son. He set about showing him what for <laughs> when he took over the brewery and the family's enormous fortune with his wife Lillian. And he, he pretty much went about living the more inspired parts of a Fetty Wap album. <laughs> uh, he had these lavish parties in the family cave, complete <laughs> with hookers for his friends. Actual hookers for his friends. Well, it kind of sounds like something that Bruce Wayne would have done if his someone hadn't come along and shot his parents. <laughs> well, and you know, it, to, to be fair, it's usually the second generation that buggers up the first generation's hard work. Like, repeatedly you see that. The Dunsmere family here in Victoria. I mean, it's always the second generation that didn't earn it, but are quite comfortable just kind of blowing through it. And William Lemp Jr. was very much that. And because rich people who who party have all the impulse control of horny toddlers on speed, <laughs> uh, Lemp went about barebacking hookers until he finally knocked one off. Wow. And, and, yeah, and the child, who's said to have been born with Down syndrome, was actually forced to live in the attic with the servants. Because being a degenerate was not enough for old Bill Lemp, he actually had to cross the line into full-blown f***ing monster. Fun fact, the kid's ghost is still seen in the house to this day and is referred to as the monkey face boy. Oh. Because apparently the poor son of a didn't suffer enough in life. No kidding. Since I didn't seem to find, couldn't find any readily accessible information about his real name, we're gonna call him Jimmy uh, from <laughs> here on out because we're, <laughs> but we're not that bad. Yeah, we're not that bad. Uh, Lemp divorced his wife in 1908, and having ignored his business in favor of becoming a pre-war Snoop Dogg, <laughs> uh, his brewery of course fell behind, and prohibition put the, the final nail in the coffin yeah. for Lemp Brewery. Yeah. The individual family members walked away wealthy. Yeah. Although apparently, when they when they decided to close the place, they didn't tell the workers. The workers just turned up to work one day, and the place was was shuttered. Well, as keeping with the character that uh, good old Freddie has shown himself to be, William, William, <laughs> oh William, right? Sorry, Freddie already. Died. Yeah, yeah. Freddie and Freddie went to hell in a big rowboat. <laughs> uh, of course, the wealth didn't help his sister Elsa Lempright, who shot herself in 1920. What is it with this family and offing themselves? Well, I mean, maybe if William Lemp Jr. had done it sooner, they, the the company might have survived. <laughs> How come nobody drank themselves to death? That would just seem more fitting. Well, that's, that's coming. Oh, okay, good. 
So two years later, William Jr. shot himself as well on the first floor of the mansion. Good Lord. Uh, 1943, William Lemp III, his son, had a heart attack at the age of 42. Wow. Um, so Will Jr.'s brother Charles, one of the last, there's two left now, there's Charles and Edwin. Charles moved back into the mansion where Jimmy still lived. Right. And he became a, a really weird germophobic recluse. Ooh, like a Howard Hughes precursor. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Yeah, just with, with, with a poor deformed kid living in the attic. Uh, the boy died, Jimmy died at the age of 30, and shortly thereafter in 1949, Charles Lamb shot himself. Oh, my God. And, and, and as if that's not bad enough, the dirty son of shot his dog first. Wow. He shot the dog in the basement. And there seems to be conflicting information on where he shot himself, regardless. Bottom of line is he shot himself. He shot himself. Right. Really, the only member of that family to escape their legacy unscathed was the third brother, Edwin. He left St. Louis uh, years before, and he lived until he was 90. So, uh, you know, from that, maybe there's a theory that maybe St. Louis is the source of all evil. Because <laughs> Edwin left to rural Missouri... You live till ninety. I'm just saying. Well, St. Louis gave us the St. Lunatics and Midwest Swings, so I can't, I can't get behind that. <laughs> Dirty South forever, y'all. Uh, interestingly, though, when Edwin died, he left orders for his butler to burn all of the family paintings, along with their documents and a number of antiques. Holy cow! Yeah, and I mean, it's probably just the final quirk of a of a dude who'd lived long enough to know that doesn't matter. Yeah. But still, it makes you wonder if there's some kind of significance to it. You know, the the kooky, spooky conspiracy theorist, yeah. parts, part of me wonders if they had like a, a Dybbuk box or some kind of haunted bread box that, that just forever cursed the family. Well, and the other part is, did Edwin have kids? Because I wonder how keen they were to watch all that priceless <laughs> art go up and play. I don't think he did. Oh, wow. No, the, when Edwin died, that was the last of the limps. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it, it just seems like, uh, like that family had off the wrong gypsy. Yeah, no kidding. And when they died off. So, it, I don't know. Maybe it's a, a wealthy family thing. Yeah. Or maybe you got to make some kind of Faustian bargain to get that rich in the first place. <laughs> maybe. So, the mansion was converted into a restaurant hotel in 1975. And ever since, both staff and guests have seen apparitions appearing and disappearing. They've mm -hmm. heard disembodied voices and lights turning on and off. Uh, the piano in the bar is said to play itself from time to time. One of the more amusing ghosts is said to be, like, peeping on ladies in the downstairs bathroom. A classy ghost. I'm telling you. Well, it's the kind of ghost you expect from a place from the where, they, where, they, yeah, where they used to have underground hooker parties. Yes. Poor Jimmy is said to haunt the attic where he spent most of his life. Uh, passerbys have seen his face peering at him from the third floor window, and ghost investigators apparently have left toys up there only to return and find them moved. Oh, wow. Guests who stay in uh, William Lemp Sr.'s room are said to hear the sound of someone running up to the door and soundly kicking it. Now, the story behind there is that his kid, when he heard the gunshot, right. ran up and kicked the door. But that strikes me as something someone came up with after the fact to, to explain the noise. Yeah, explain yeah. the story. It does remind me of a story I heard on Coast to Coast once where this poor <laughs> called in to talk to some ghost investigator and let him know that try and find a solution for this problem he was having. He said that ghosts would, this young ghost of a young boy would run into his room at night and kick his bed. That would be annoying. That would be hugely annoying. And, and I really felt for this poor guy because he was clearly desperate. And the guy being interviewed on the show said, well, you just have to own your space and use the white light and, and all this other garbage. Right. And this poor bugger said, I've done all this. And, and because the person on the phone call was a charlatan, <laughs> he just said, oh, well, no, you're not doing it hard enough. And you know? goodbye? Yeah, exactly. Oh, my yeah, okay. God. <laughs> I can't hear you. <laughs> We're going in a tunnel. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it, it, it makes you wonder, because of the similarity like that, it makes you wonder if there's, uh, if it's some kind of neurological thing. Right. You know, like like the whole exploding head thing. You know, maybe it's something along those lines. Maybe it's not even... Uh, someone running and kicking. Maybe it's just a series of noises that we kind of put into that order so we think it's that. Yeah, I mean, and that's what we're going to do with our, our own experiences is try and put our own view on it. And so for this man, something was kicking his bed. But yep. the poor guy, I hope he 
got some sleep eventually. Should you ever want to experience the hauntings of Lemp Mansion yourself? I don't know why you would, but... Um, I'm okay. Uh, the hotel does offer a haunted tour every Monday night throughout the year, uh, and you can find more links to both that and more info on these two haunted houses in our show notes. So coming up next, Ian's going to share a personal story with us. We'll be right back. This story really is uh, the first time I got serious about um, paranormal. Um, I'd certainly had experiences before. Uh, in college, I, when I was a, a kid in England, a kid in Alberta. Um, but this was my own personal kind of, I guess you could call it a confrontation with this sort of thing. Uh, I would move to New Brunswick. I'd just gotten married. I was 23. Um, and, just to clarify, this is about 60 years ago? Yeah, thank you. Um, so we had uh, rented a house in rural New Brunswick. I won't give the exact location because it's still there. I just checked on Google Maps. The people were away for an extended period of time, needed someone in the house. It was an older house uh, built in 1915 and uh, quite large. It had about five bedrooms. It had an addition, a new addition on the back that was the kitchen. It was right across from the ocean. It was very isolated. Uh, had a long driveway, almost a kilometer long, up from the road to the house. And that was pretty much all there was around it. We'd moved in. The first thing we noticed was the basement was uncomfortable. We had a cat at the time. The cat did not like going down there. We eventually had to move the litter box up. We'd go down there sometimes to do laundry or whatever. And it was just, it didn't feel very good. The other thing about the house, we moved there in November. And we could never keep it warm. Um, we made the very unwise and unsafe choice to bring a propane heater into the living room. And even that didn't keep it warm. It was shockingly cold. We chalked that up to, well, we're near the ocean. It's probably the wind, that sort of thing. So the first thing that happened that really caught our attention, though, and again, I, I referred to Hill House because uh, the haunting of Hill House because it was so similar in the way it slowly built. There were no scientists involved in our story, but it was uh, otherwise quite similar. We were both in bed, which faced out the front of the house. You could see the driveway from where we were. It was early in the morning and we heard a car very clearly drive all the way up the driveway and then two car doors slam bang bang we looked at each other like who could be here and uh, went over to the windows and there literally was no one there there was no tracks there was nothing there's nobody there we kind of thought that was weird but eh, what are you gonna do right something weird happens not a big deal went about our day and then over the next couple of days um we would hear that car pull in and the door slam on a pretty frequent basis, every other day or so. And it got to the point where we wouldn't even look anymore. We just knew there was nobody there. The other thing I noticed, the door between the new kitchen addition and the original house, the kitchen addition would stay warm, no problem. But the door would always be open in the morning. We would close it tight. One night I even put a chair on the other side because you could cut through, cut around to another room and do it. But that door in the morning would always be open. Never figured it out. I did hear it open one night. But again, you go, oh, old house, you know, the doors are crooked, whatever. I don't do that. Back when I lived in a house, the second I heard what sounded like a door, immediately I assumed it was a serial killer. <laughs> immediately. Well, I guess I'm a little less paranoid. Uh, so anyway, we, we uh, you know, kept going about our day. We'd been there. It seemed like we lived there a lot longer than we did. We were really only there for two months before we got the hell out and we got an apartment in town. But we were there and we thought everything was going well. Things began happening. Uh, other things began happening too. Never connected. Always very isolated. Wake up in the morning and I, I mentioned there were five bedrooms. So it was our door and there was the bathroom and then the other four bedrooms. And we would never use those bedrooms. They were closed. We didn't need them. But every morning, one of those doors 
would be open, one of the other four doors. And I would just close it, wouldn't really think about it. Then eventually uh, we got to the point where we were really starting to feel uncomfortable in the house. Something seemed to be wrong and uh, we weren't very happy there. And we talked about it sort of with each other, but once you talk about it, you then kind of have to acknowledge it. And we were working very hard not to do that. We did talk about it one morning because everything seemed to be going wrong. It definitely felt like something didn't want us there. And I went to my lovely new wife and said, do you want to go into town? And she said, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> we got out, started heading to town, and I brought it up. I said, do you think there's something wrong with this house? And she said, oh, yeah. Like, I'm so glad you said something. We talked about it a bit. And uh, I didn't feel like we could challenge it. We were newcomers. We were renters. We didn't really have any say in what happened in this house. But it was pretty clear something wasn't all that thrilled with us being there. Eventually, the door, the coldness, the car was coming up and down. And still, we didn't quite put it all together. We didn't really figure it out. And one night, something new got added. Um, we were in bed, and we heard someone walking up the stairs to the second level of the house. Oh. And they stopped in the middle of the stairs. Well, you could hear it. You, I knew there were like, you know, 15, 12, 15 stairs. One, two, three, four, five, six. And mm -hmm. it would stop. And I remember actually turning to my wife and going, did you hear that? And she was like, yeah, I heard that. And then we just sort of ignored it because that's what you do when you're normal and sane, right? Things came to a peak. All these things happened. They would happen on and off. Sometimes they would happen through the day. Sometimes only at night. And one night the house seemed particularly tense. I, I don't know how to describe it. We weren't tense, but the house was tense. And that night we were up. Uh, I was reading a bed. We were both reading. We had our bedside lights on. The house was again really cold. So once you're in bed, you didn't get out of bed. Like you just wanted to stay there. And for the first time ever, all these noises happened in some kind of sequence. We heard the car drive up, slam, slam. We heard the door. I actually heard it click and creak open a little bit. And then I heard the footsteps on the stairs. And at this point, my brain is making all the connections of, oh my God, this is a sequence of events. Right. We heard the thing, uh, the, the steps coming up the stairs. And then this was the new, and the first time this happened, it sounded like someone took about eight phone books and threw them down outside our bedroom door. The house shook. A glass of water I had on the nightstand fell off the nightstand. Like it was oh. substantial. And being the manly man I am, I turned to my wife and said, do you want to go check that out? <laughs> she declined. The heart of a warrior. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, I'm still alive. <laughs> and she said, uh, what do you think that was? And I said, I don't know. And I said, uh, do you want to just go to sleep? And she said, yes. Wow. Yeah. And, and looking back at it, you think, wouldn't you do anything but? But we turned off the lights and we went to sleep because we really didn't know what else to do. Right. The next morning I got up. I checked all the bedrooms. Did something fall? I looked uh, all around the house. There weren't any trees near the house. It was quite open. Uh, I looked for snow. I looked for tracks. I looked for anything. Nothing had happened. The only thing that was consistent, the door was open in the morning and it was still freezing cold. So... At that point, I was getting a little bit desperate because it, it seemed to be, in a way, ironically, turning up the heat. Uh, so I know, I know. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to go to town. I'm going to go get a haircut. I'm just going to think this through. Well, I'm there. I'm getting a haircut. And I happened to mention to the lady cutting my hair, hey, do you know anything about the old house? And she looked at the other stylist and then she looked at me and she said, you live there? Ha. Huh. Ha. She then told me the story. And uh, I took the story in, I went back to see my lovely wife and I said, um, we're moving. And wow. yeah, and, and we had no money and we were gonna lose our deposit. Didn't care. I said, we're moving. And I'm the cheapest man in the world. So for me to walk away from money, it's a pretty big deal. We, uh, we found an apartment in town and we literally were gone in a week. She said, 
what happened? Tell me the story. I'm like, nope, not until we're out of here. And I, I stuck with it. I would not tell her. And as we drove away from the house, down that very long driveway onto the onto the main road, I don't know what told me to do this. I just said to her, don't look back. Just don't look back at the house as we drive away. It just felt like we would be inviting something. So we got into town. And we got into our horrible apartment, um, which was still better than a creepy haunted mm-hmm. house. And I told her the story. And the story they told me was that um, the house had originally been built by the local school board. And it was built for a man. He was the the main teacher. He had a wife. He had five kids. So they built quite a large house. He then left. And uh, this was more kind of the 1930s in here. He had he had gone away. And when he left, um, they brought in another teacher. And she was a single woman. So she was living in the house by herself. What had occurred was it was very close to the American border. And so uh, two guys had escaped from jail. They'd stolen a truck or something like that. The border, not quite as high tech as it is now. Mm-hmm had been driving up the road and they had seen this house isolated on its own with one light on and they decided that they were gonna go in there and get food and clothes or whatever. They drove up the driveway, they kicked in the back door, they started to go up the stairs. She met them halfway down the stairs and they unfortunately murdered her, raped her, that sort of thing. So my thinking and looking back at it was that this woman had a real problem and i believe it was her spirit um had a real problem with like a happy young couple living in the home where she never got to finish you know living out her life right so that really turned my thinking from being sort of a uh edge of the road believer uh you know when you experience and people would tell me stories like this and i'd be like mm-hmm, oh that's very upsetting for you right. and, and, and kind of believing them wanting to believe them but not really believing it but when you live through it yourself it that changes everything and that really is what got me on the path of of looking into this more and being more open to it and being more willing to Kinda, I don't want to say tangle with it because I'm still a coward, but um, yeah. definitely still be more open to what maybe some spirits have to say. Right. right. And now we've talked about you being fairly sensitive to these things. After all this, did you look back at your early life and go, oh, that's what that was? Yeah, I I kind of thought everybody picked up on the same things. And I think that's why I was confused. I was also raised in a pretty conservative religious house. And so anytime I would bring something up to my mom or my dad, I would be told, no, that's not real. That's the devil. Mm. Um, You're lying. You're making it up. So you quickly learn to not trust yourself. In fairness, your wife still says that whenever you talk about me. (laughs) The devil, you're making him up. Yeah, that is true. Uh, But uh, I definitely think looking back after having that experience, it made a lot of other things make sense. Things I'd experienced in other homes, with other people. It caused me to be a a little more open-minded to other people in their stories. And in a way, it was it was sort of comforting because uh, I realized that looking back at it, it wasn't that unusual, mm-hmm. right? It, it wasn't that uncommon. These are kind of international stories. But when you have one on of your own and you literally get out of that house as quickly as you can, um, I have a lot more compassion for people who are going through this. And, and that's part of what prompted me to begin writing ghost stories is that if it brings some peace to somebody else, then... Job about that. Plus, I love history. I love that kind of stuff. So after leaving that house, did you ever go back or did you ever talk to the people who lived there after you? Because presumably some other poor schmuck moved in there. Uh, Yeah, well, they couldn't rent it after that because these people were uh, working overseas. And so um, they were really mad at us for leaving. Um, and as far as I know, they moved in there, uh, back in there after a couple of years. The house stayed empty until then. And they lived there for a long time, didn't have any problems. But see, I think part of it is 
It depends on the person. I've had friends who've said to me, hey, we're looking at buying a new house. Come and tell us what you think. And I'll go in there and I, I might pick up on something, but I, I will often say to them, how do you feel in the house? Right. And and if there's no physical manifestation, door slamming and that sort of thing, then what does it really matter? Right. Uh, I don't think it's about special gifts or anything like that. It's like uh, having two TV sets. One is a higher antenna than the other. So the one with the higher antenna is going to pull more stuff in. That's not any kind of cosmic magic. That's just the way it is. And I think some people have a higher antenna than others. Right. It means that I may experience something you might, you might experience something I might, uh, I might walk into somewhere and go, whoa, this place is messed up spiritually. And someone else is like, no, oh, I feel fine here. I, I don't mind it at all. So it's going to depend on the power of whatever entity is there. I guess how it's feeling about you or about the right. situation and also your ability to actually pick up on that stuff. That reminds me of something that happened to me in Los Angeles in uh, November 2015. Um, for whatever reason, all that year I'd had Los Angeles on the brain. I'd only really driven through once, never actually been to the city. So that fall, I was planning to go to the Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis and then fly over to Los Angeles. And of course, Paradigm fell through that year, so I just went to Los Angeles. On my, I want to say my second or third night there, it was a Friday, I went to go see the Groundlings over on Melrose. Very cool. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I like taking night photography. Uh, follow me on Instagram at largely the truth. <laughs> do you have a book, Brennan? I do. <laughs> a strange little place available everywhere. Fine books are sold. But uh, yeah, so I, I like taking night photography or night night pictures. So I I and I love industrial spaces. So I drove out to City of Industry in East LA, which I'm told was not wise. No, nah, probably not. Midnight. Yeah. Uh, but I did. And now Industry is 12 square miles of industrial suburb. It's Rail yards and uh, <clears throat> uh, loading docks, electrical substations. With a, a good place to get murdered. It it really is. Yeah, yeah it's, it's actually I think that's on the it's on the town motto. It's a good <laughs> place to get murdered. Uh, with a population of about two hundred in that whole area, wow. so it's sparse. Yeah. So I, I was there at about midnight, twelve thirty, uh, closer to twelve thirty one, and the whole time I was taking pictures. Of course, there were no there's no one around, and I was I was jangled, but I assumed. That's because I, I'm a small town guy. I'm in, I'm in a, I'm in a yeah. big city, biggest city I've ever been into. Well, not the biggest, but yeah. uh, first I've never been to Los Angeles, which of course has its own mm -hmm. real uh, sort of negative negative reputation. So I, I I just wrote it off. But after about an hour of driving around this empty expanse, taking pictures, uh, I had a conversation with a security guard that was rather pleasant. And then I, I just had this feeling like, you know what, I'm gonna go. Time I, to I, go. I just yeah. thought it's time to go. Yeah. So I got back, I got in the car, and I was just about to get on the freeway when I pull up to the the on-ramp, and I see there's a police car parked at an angle across the ramp. Never a good sign. Never a good sign. Well, yokel that I am, I assumed it was a sobriety checkpoint. Right. <laughs> so I start pulling up to the car. Well, the, these two LAPD officers get out and say, what the hell are you doing? So I put my hands up. I said, holy <laughs> I said, I, I'm not from around here. I don't know what's going on. And the one officer says, they don't have road flares where you're from? And I realized I was so transfixed by his lights that I had missed the line of road flares blocking off the on-ramp. Oh. Yeah, this did not make me popular. No. So I apologized. I I, I said, I'm sorry. I, I just wasn't, I missed it. And he said, well, we got a shooter up on that freeway. You got to get the f*** out of here right now. So I said, okay, yes, sir. Got in the car, took off. And I had to take surface streets all the way back to the Hollywood Hills where I was, I was renting a room. That would take a while. It took a while. Yeah. yeah. So I got home late. And in the morning, I checked KTLA. To find out that this shooter, who had been cornered up on that particular stretch of freeway, they, the cops had chased him all through industry. Oh, wow. And so I just managed to miss him 
every time because I'd moved around quite a bit. And so it makes me wonder, I mean, was I just normal nervous about being in a terrifying industrial wasteland past midnight? Or was I picking up on the fact that I was literally in your, harm's way? Your life was in danger. Yeah. At, you know, yeah. at, at random points. It, it's hard to say. And I don't know if it's, if it, <laughs> what do you think? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you hear stories about people who say, oh, I met this person or I was in this situation and something didn't feel right. And then they go ahead and do it anyway. And, and I think um, you were probably picking up on that. I mean, we have instincts for a reason. And the biggest, uh, the, the best thing we can do for ourselves is begin to listen to those and yeah. trust those. And so for a long time, I didn't trust those. I would meet someone, I'd have a weird feeling about them. And I think, well, I'm just being judgmental. And then it turns out, no, they were not good people, yeah. right? And, and so that has changed the way I approach things. If I meet someone, I don't feel good about them. I'm not going to be horrible to them, but I'm certainly not going to go out of my way to spend time. Um, one, one every year you host a podcast with them. <laughs> well, we all have our charity cases. But no, I, I do think we often have instincts about things. We need to listen to them. And I, knowing you as I do, I'm pretty sure you were definitely picking up on something. You just weren't smart enough to listen to it, apparently. Well, well, I, you I, were at the end. I, at the end. <laughs> at the end. After the gunman had been secured. And the police spoke with you, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, okay, when you put it like that. Funny enough, that, that was one of three times on that trip where I was n near, near or almost near the presence of gunfire. Well, it's L.A. But <laughs> the second time I was taking pictures in downtown L.A. at about 3 in the morning. Always a smart choice. Well, yeah. I mean, by this point, I'd, I'd moved to a motel. Jerry's Motel on 5th. <laughs> I think it's 5th. Anyways, Jerry's Motel, downtown L.A. Need a cheap place to stay in L.A.? Jerry's. It's great. Jerry's, if you're listening, sponsor us. So I was staying at Jerry's, say 3 in the morning, taking long exposures off a freeway bridge. Right. And all of a sudden, maybe a block away to my right, I heard bang, bang, bang. And I thought, I should go now. So I got in the car and, and, and went back to my motel. And then the third time was about two days before, I'm sorry, the night before I left. I wanted to go see Roast Battle at the Comedy Store on Tuesday. Uh, this was, now you, you can't even get in there. The place is just, it's nuts right now, oh. the Comedy Store. But at the time, you could still get in on Tuesdays. So I, I was going to do it, and I really wanted to. But I, for whatever reason, I couldn't motivate myself out the door. Uh, I, again, I was staying in downtown. I thought, it's going to take me half an hour to drive to the Strip. I got to park. Ah, man. And I, I really wanted to see it. But again, I just couldn't motivate myself yeah. there. So I stayed in, ordered a pizza, and I think I watched Die Hard. As it turns out, that night after Roast Battle, there was a shooting directly in front of the comedy. So, yeah, I think um, if you're willing to listen and you're willing to be open to that kind of thing, it will help you out. But the sad truth is most of us aren't. And we're not even aware of it. And on that note, I think we're going to draw episode two to a close. Sounds good. Thank you all for tuning in. We will be back. This is a, a little bit anomalous. We're going to be doing every two weeks, but I wanted to get this out the door because I am going to be appearing on Into the Fray Radio on Thursday at 7 p.m. I believe you can find that at intothefrayradio.com or on Facebook at Into the Fray Radio. All right, so for plugs, uh, my name is Brennan Storr. <laughs> Uh, you can find my book, A Strange Little Place, The Hauntings and Unexplained Events of One Small Town on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle. I have a book. Yeah. I, I have a book coming out. Okay, Ian's book is... Please? Uh, yeah. Ian's book is... Yeah.
and that'll be out on April 25th yeah. uh, and available again on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. All those good places. And probably from your local library. Get it from them. <laughs> Don't pay for that garbage. Thanks for that. <laughs> uh, you can also find us on uh, Facebook. We have our Ghost Story Guys podcast page. We'd love you to like it. Uh, you can also leave any kind of comments you want there, as well as on Twitter, uh, Ghost Story Guys. And the website is up and running. It is. It's uh, ghoststoryguys.com. We're going to still keep adding to it. But if you are desperate and you don't know where to find our podcast, you can find it there. You can also find us now on iTunes. We are uh, we are out there in the world, so please rate and review us on iTunes. And uh, that's going to do it for episode two, This Old Haunted House. Uh, if you live in a haunted house, we'd love to hear your story. Absolutely. Email us at ghoststoryguys at gmail.com or contact us through the form on our website. So that's going to do it for now. Until next time, take care, be good to one another, and remember, ghost hunting is really just running around in the dark. Yes, it is. Yes, it is.